Park of Morning. The scripture reading is taken from 2 Kings 2, 1 to 14. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elijah said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he said, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. This is the word of the Lord. That you would open our eyes to see your glory, our hearts to receive your love, and our minds to understand the depth of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the, the book of Kings, and the main plot of the book of Kings is the attempt that Israel makes in its uh, desire to live under an earthly monarchy 
and live as the people of God in the promised land and with how God deals with the Israelites in their successes and their failures. And for the most part, as we know, they fail more often than they succeed. They fail to live as the people of God. In fact, they go as far as to reject God. They reject the God of Abraham through whom all nations on earth would be blessed. They reject the God of Jacob through whom the nation and the tribes of Israel would get their name. They reject the God of Moses who led them out of bondage and slavery into freedom. They reject the God of Joshua through whom God would lead them across the Jordan River into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They reject the God of the judges through whom God would repeatedly call back a wayward people who did evil in his eyes. They reject the God of David through whom he would establish his kingdom for his people. They rebel against and reject this God and instead turn to deaf, dumb, and blind idols of the nations around them. And their kings and priests and prophets lead the way and act with injustice against their own people. Israel has failed, and not only is it divided, before the end of the book of Kings, we will see a people of Israel and the people of Judah led out of their land, back into a foreign land to live as an exiled people, a nation without a home. But despite all this rebellion, all this rejection and lawlessness and injustice, the Lord God does not abandon them. He does not leave them as orphans or without a voice calling to them in the wilderness for them to repent and return to the Lord. Throughout all this time and their time in exile, God sends them prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, Micah, and Malachi, and of course, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah weaves his way through most of the first part of the book of Kings, and then his role and blessing transitions over to Elisha, who continues to be the voice of God to a people made deaf by mute idols. It is this time of transition from Elijah his final disruptive act as God's prophet to Elisha's first act as God's prophet that we're going to look at this morning. Elijah's foil, uh, King Ahab, by this point, has died. And it is now his son who sits upon the throne. And it turns out he is no better of a king than his father was. And through an accidental fall, he fell through, through a roof, uh, the king now lays on his bed and he's wondering whether or not he'll ever recover or if he's going to die from his injuries. And rather pray to, than pray to the God of, to, to, to Yahweh, to the God of the Israelites, he decides to inquire of Beelzebub, a foreign god. And so he tells his men to go out and to inquire of this Beelzebub to find out if he's going to die from his injuries. And Elijah is told by God to go out and meet the king's messengers and tell them that because the king has been so idolatrous, he is, in fact, going to die from his injuries. And so they return to the king, and they tell him about the encounter with the prophet, and the king asks them for a description of the man. And the men who were there said, well, yeah, he, was, he was a hairy man, he wore a hairy coat, and, and he had a leather belt tied around his waist. And the king said, oh, that would be Elijah. 
Now, the king, knowing the history between Elijah and his father Ahab, is none too pleased that this disruptor of Israel is now poking his nose into his business. And being the king of Israel, sovereign over Israel, the one who is in charge, he sends out a troop of 50 men to demand that Elijah come down from his mountain to speak to him face to face. He is the king. Who is this prophet? If you are telling me that I'm sinning and I'm going to die, you come and tell me to my face. Now, Elijah has a slightly different worldview concerning who is in charge of Israel and who is in sovereign and who is sovereign. And so he sees absolutely no need for him to come down from the mountain to see the king. And he does something that is perhaps a little extreme, but not necessarily out of keeping with his personality. What Elijah does is he calls down the fire of God from on high, just as he did at Mount Carmel, and he, the fire of God burns up and consumes the troop of 50 men. Now, not to be deterred, the king sends out 50 more men to demand that Elijah come down from his meeting and meet the king face to face. And again, Elijah calls down the fire of God from on high, and they are consumed by the fire of God. The king sends out a third troop. But this time, the captain of this troop approaches Elijah slightly differently. He recognizes that Elijah is a prophet of the Lord Most High, that he is a man of God. And he pleads with him to have mercy on him, to consider his life, and and, and to consider the life of, of the soldiers that are there. And he acts humbly. And this time, the Lord tells Elijah, okay, go and see the king. And when he goes to see the king, he does in fact say to him face to face, because you went out after other gods, you're going to die of your injuries. And that is Elijah's last act, essentially, as prophet of Israel. It is now time for him to go and for Elisha to take his place. Now, this isn't new news. We were told back in 1 Kings chapter 19 that this was going to happen. We just didn't know when. Well, now is when. But as with most things concerning Elijah, the events become a bit strange. As you notice in the reading we just had from that, that Joe read, there, Elijah tries three times to sort of ditch Elisha. He says to Elisha, okay, Uh, The Lord sent me to Bethel, you stay here. But Elisha says, no, 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 no. As sure as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. So they go to Bethel. And and what happens is some prophets of God come out of Bethel and and, and they say to Elisha, uh, you know that today is the day the Lord's going to take your master away from you. Today's the day Elijah's going to die. And Elisha says, yes, I know that. Thank you very much. Keep quiet. And then then Elijah says, okay, Elisha... um, The Lord sent me to Jericho now, you stay here. And again, he says, no, 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 I'm I'm going to stay with you. As sure as the Lord lives and you live, I'm not going to abandon you. And so they go to Jericho. And in Jericho, some of the prophets come out and say to Elisha, you know today's the day that Elijah's going to die, right? Today's the day the Lord's going to take him. And again, Elisha says, yes, thank you very much. I'm quite aware of that. Can you please not talk about it? And then Elijah says to him, okay, the Lord sent me to the Jordan. Can you stay here? And Elisha just looks at him and says, are you serious? He said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I'm not going to leave your side. Three times. Why does he try to discourage Elisha or distance himself from him? When he knows that Elisha is going to be a successor. 
Well, we don't know for sure, but I would suggest that perhaps it's a bit of a test. A threefold temptation in the wilderness to take a second thought before beginning his ministry. Is there anyone else who comes to mind who is in the wilderness and is tempted three times just to take a second thought before beginning his ministry? You see, life as a prophet, life as the prophet of the Lord Most High, is not a good job. It's not the job that you apply for. It's not one that you set out, what do I want to do with my life? I know I want to be a prophet of Yahweh. Because it's a horrible, awful job. Most of the time, you are unpopular. Most of the time, anything you say, people are very skeptical of. And there is almost always someone, usually someone in power, who would prefer to see you dead than do the ministry you're doing. And so he says, Elisha, just stay here. Don't get involved. And Elisha says, as sure as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I'm not going to leave you. I'm ready for this. And so Elijah and Elisha walk up to the Jordan River. They walk up to near the exact same spot where several hundred years earlier, Joshua stood with the children of Israel standing behind them. And Elijah takes off his cloak, rolls it up, and he strikes the water with it. And they walk across on dry land. When they get to the other side, it seems that Elijah is convinced that Elisha is ready. And so he says to him, what shall I do for you before I'm taken away? And Elisha says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. I want your life repeated in my life. I want to be a holy man just like you. I want to be a prophet for Israel just like you have been. And Elisha says, that is a hard thing that you ask. But if you see me taken away from you, you will get what you ask. But if you miss it, if you take your eyes off, if you don't see me taken away from you, then it shall not be yours. And they continued on their way, talking, when suddenly, behold, chariots of fire and a horse of fire separated the two of them, Elijah from Elisha, And Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha sees it. And he cries out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then he saw him no more. All he and and then he takes hold of his clothes that he was wearing, his robes, and he tears them in two as if mourning and grieving over the death of a beloved son, a beloved friend. And he took up, as he sees lying on the ground, Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him. And he takes that up, and he goes back to the Jordan River. And he rolls it up. And he takes the cloak, and he strikes the water and says, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Is he still here? Is he still with Israel? Are you with me? And as he strikes the water, the water begins to part from one side to the other. And Elisha crosses over on dry land. Elisha now stands in the tradition of Moses and Joshua and Elijah as one parting the waters and being the voice of God to his people. Now what happens next is again a little strange. The prophets who were 
on the other side of the river who kind of saw what was going on on this side, uh, they come up to him and they, and, and, and they say, should we go and look for Elijah? Should we go and look for his body? It, now, it's not clear if they thought maybe Elijah was still alive because Elijah had this reputation uh, of being someone who could, could be in one place and you kind of turn around and all of a sudden realize, oh, he's gone. Where is he gone? He, like, it was this magic, walking magic show. He just disappeared randomly. That was the rumor about him. But they knew that that was the day he was going to die. So more likely, what they were saying is, should we go look for his body? We saw that he got caught up in some sort of whirlwind, but he was the prophet of, of Israel. He should be given a proper burial. Should we look for his body? And Elisha says, no, you're not going to find it. And they said, please, please, can we go look for his body? And Elisha said, oh, sure, knock your socks off. Go, go give it a shot. Well, after a few days, they come back to Elisha and say, uh, yeah, we didn't find the body. And Elisha says, yeah, well, it's not like I didn't tell you so. I am a prophet after all. And then some men from Jericho come out to Elisha. And they say, you know, the situation in the city is pleasant. It's, 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 a, it's a lovely place to live. It really is. Um, but the problem is, is the water's bad. The water's poisonous and our land isn't producing any food. It's unfruitful. Now, what do we know about the city of Jericho? Right? Yeah, it was a city that when they first crossed over the promised land, they, they did that little tour around the city seven times and blew their horn and the walls of the city came tumbling down. And you know this song that you've learned in kids' church or Sunday school, right? Uh, and the walls came down, the walls came down or whatever it is. When the walls came crumbling down, Joshua, speaking for the Lord, put a curse on that city and said, anyone who builds this city again, the city will be cursed. It should never be raised. And yet here we are several hundred years later, and there is another city of Jericho. The city has been rebuilt, and the city is under a curse, just as Joshua had said. Jericho has bad water and no agriculture, though it is a beautiful city. But God, in his mercy through Elisha, seems to relent of the curse he put on the city. And Elisha takes some salt and adds it to water and says something over the water, and it turns pure. It's drinkable. Again, an act like Moses, when he took the bitter water, struck it with a rock, or with, a, with a stick, and the water became pure, became drinkable. But it's also Elisha's first miracle. Perhaps something of a foreshadowing of a time when another man's first miracle would involve the changing of water into something. But what happens next is a story that quite possibly makes the top ten list of strange, disturbing, random, weird stories in the whole of Scripture. Scripture is full of weird, random stories, but this one has to be right near the top. Elisha leaves Jericho, and he's making his way up to Bethel. Now, Bethel, it should be noted, was a hotbed of idol worship. It was the epicenter of false worship and spiritual adultery in the land of Israel. It was, it was Vegas plus some. So, Elisha's approaching Bethel, and some young boys, and the Hebrew phrasing suggests boys closer to the age of about 10 or 12, come out of Bethel, 
and begin to mock him and call him names. They say something like, hey, what's up, you old bald head? Get out of our way, skinhead, you old baldy. Now, we all know that from time to time, 10-year-old boys, if they want to be, can be a little trying, a little annoying. And those of us who have been parents of 10-year-old boys may even say to ourselves under our breath, I get my hands on him, I'm going to wring his little neck. We say it to ourselves, we think it, but we never almost act on it. But Elisha, it seems, has received a double portion of Elijah's spirit and a double portion of Elijah's reactions. Because just like at the beginning of our story, when a troop of soldiers acting on the command of the king come to him and ask him to come down from a mountain, and he calls down the fire of God on them and burns them up. Elisha, too, reacts firmly, if I can put it that way. Elisha turns to this group of boys, takes one look at them, curses them in the name of God, and two she-bears come out from the underbrush, knock the boys down, rip them limb from limb, 42 children in all. From there... Elisha goes up to Mount Carmel, and from there he returns to Samaria. End of story. As I said, it's got to be in the top ten weird, bizarre, troubling stories in the whole of Scripture. It seems to be an overreaction, doesn't it? All they did was call him Baldy. Now, I recognize that for some gentlemen, as their hair begins to retreat, they may find it a sensitive issue. I get that. But this seems an extreme response. However, if we look back through the stories in the book of Kings, and in the book of Judges, and in Joshua, and Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Exodus, and even Genesis, we see one consistent thread of truth that winds its way throughout the whole of Scripture. God takes idolatry very seriously. Idolatry is a deadly business. And once we become idolaters, once we reject God's command to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we quickly reject his second command to love others, and we act with injustice. Idolatry and injustice go hand in hand, and God takes it very seriously because they lead to death, which is exactly what we see in Genesis with the Tower of Babel. It's what we see in Genesis with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's what we see in Exodus with the golden calf and the snake. It's what we see in Joshua with the hidden idol that leads to Israel's defeat at Ai in the promised land. And it's what we see at Mount Carmel with Elijah. And it's what we see now. The king seeks after other gods. And he makes himself sovereign over Israel. And as a result, a hundred men lose their lives. These young boys have learned from a young age to reject the Lord God of Israel. When they go after Elisha, calling him baldy, perhaps in comparison with Elijah, who had been called Harry, maybe they're sort of saying, you're not a real prophet like Elijah was, you're a fake. Whatever the reason for the mocking, they're not just mocking Elisha, the prophet of God. They're mocking God. Idol worship in the city has led to a complete dismissing of the reality and power and holiness of God. 
the one who set them free from Egypt, the one who gave them the promised land, and the one who is their true and only king. And now people who grow up, now, now, now people who grow up only knowing another God, only growing up in a household where only another God was worshipped, yes, that too is idol worship, but God seems to deal with them with mercy and patience. But for those who know the true God, who have grown up with the stories of, of Israel, of Yahweh, of the God who set them free, and the stories for us of Jesus, and yet still choose to reject Him and take up with other gods, well, for them, God's mercy and judgment looks quite different. Their teaching, the king's idol worship, the altars to other gods, all lead people astray, away from the God who made them and loves them and holds them. And this leads to death, to eternal death. And so it seems that a point is being made in the book of Kings that idolatry and injustice are against God's law, and he takes it very seriously, almost as if it was a matter of life or death. Now, in those days, people literally had idols, little wooden or golden statues they kept in their homes of the corn god or the thunder god, and they would go out to places where these idols were kept in big towers, and they would, they would worship and inquire of these gods. And the nice thing about these idol gods was, at least early on, they demanded nothing of you, save for the occasional sacrifice of food and maybe a child or two, but you had a few to spare. But no, there was no expectation of a changed or obedient life to holiness and righteousness like the God of Jacob and Moses insisted on. So these idols were a lot easier to worship and follow and obey. Today, we don't have actual physical idols in our lives or in our homes, or at least most of us don't. But we still commit adultery with other dominant gods in our society. We are still, most of us, idol worshippers and held in a form of cultural captivity. Scripture teaches us that our, heart, our, our hearts are an idol factory. They, they lead us to replace Jesus with the gods of money, wealth, fame, and power. How many times a day or a week do we think about money, our making it, our spending it, our saving it, our making more of it, the deals we can get with it, our financial portfolios compared to the number of times during the day or the week that we think about Jesus? Idols can also come from otherwise good things. The church can become our mistress. The institution, our traditions, our liturgy, our music can all become idols that we worship and mistake for God. Even the Bible can become an object of worship lifted up higher than Christ in our hearts. In, most, in more recent years, our culture has begun to idolize technology and consumerism, the need to have the next best hot thing, believing that somehow it will make my life better or more complete. We have also exalted leisure and entertainment, the gathering of experiences as if they mean something. We make bucket lists and we travel and we participate in extreme activities, believing that somehow it will make our lives have more meaning and more value if we just have a larger list than the person beside us. We've even begun to believe the church is about entertainment. Did I enjoy it? Did I get something out of Sunday service? Did we sing the song that I like? Did the sermon make me feel better about myself? Was it therapeutic enough? 
for me? Was it to my taste and liking? Was I entertained by Sunday morning? And this form of idolatry is more insidious than the flagrant idolatry of Israel because we deceive ourselves as Christians and churchgoers that we don't have idols. We say, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't go to other religious services, so I'm all right. I have no idols in my life. But these cultural idols, which have even worked their way into our churches, are so subtle and so quiet, so hard to clearly see and define, that by the time we do discover our idolatry, idolatry, if we do, we realize we've been doing it for such a long time that it's almost impossible to stop. And that as we examine it, we realize that our idolatry has caused others to be led astray too. Our hearts have the ability to take good things and turn them into the ultimate thing. And when we do that, it's idolatry. We may not kneel down to the goddess of beauty, but how many young men and women are driven to depression, anxiety, and eating disorders because of our obsession with beauty and body image? We may not make burnt offerings to the god of wealth, but when money, financial security, and career are lifted up out of proportion we can end up performing a kind of child sacrifice ourselves, neglecting our families and even destroying them and ignoring our neighborhood and community so that we can just work a little longer, achieve a little more, and gain a little bit more of a reputation. Anything in our lives can become idols. Timothy Keller says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Life and identity. I would add to that, an idol is anything in your life which may cause you to, if only for a moment, set aside in your heart or mind the righteous voice of God causing you to suspend loving God or loving neighbor. If what you are doing is good for you but not good for neighbor, it may just well be an idol at work in your soul. And I say all this because God, as we've seen from Scripture, takes idolatry seriously. Because to him it is a matter of life or death. Lord God, we do confess that we do all have idols in our lives. From time to time there are things in our heart, our soul, mind, that take precedent over you, that we lift up as higher than you, that we fight for with more passion than we do for following you. And we ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would help us to see these idols in our own lives. Even the things that are good and beautiful that you've given us, that we have lifted up out of all proportion. We offer these things up to you not so that we feel more guilty, but in order that we might seek your pardon. We offer them to you not so that we feel beat up, but because we know we can come to you no matter how far we fall. We offer these things to you not because we are horrible people, but because we are a people who sin and are in need of a Savior. So we come to you humbly. We come to you with hearts that are rendered apart. 
ask for your grace and forgiveness. Reveal to us the idols in our lives that we may tear them down. And that we may only worship and adore you. That we may learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind. And love our neighbors as ourselves. 